Lily Flag Signal, full episode 12. Meet Virginia McCormick. If you think early 1900s heiress, you may think of socialites blowing their family's money on extravagant parties with fancy gowns or otherwise making a spectacle of themselves a la Gatsby, or maybe somebody donating their fortunes to charitable causes with their names quite prominently attached a la Andrew Carnegie and his libraries, or perhaps the Gilded Age mansion acquiring and building done by the Rockefellers and others. Today's subject is a woman named Mary Virginia McCormick, and she simultaneously was all of those things, yet nothing like them at the same time. She's one of those historical figures that the more I read about her, the more fascinated I become. She hosted interesting parties, but often for the general community and people who weren't high enough on the social ladder to ever dream of an invite to a formal event. She and her companion Grace Walker, an equally fascinating woman, did a great deal of charity work to improve the community. And as for mansions, McCormick had plenty of those. I usually aim for this show to be more of a discussion on everyday life, like with the mill villages and talking about black-run newspapers, or weird events like the trolley and the leaf flag parties, or the occasional cool building like the Backwards House and Church of the Nativity, and this one kind of hits all the boxes. I also had an opportunity to study and learn from documents that aren't easily accessible to people in the Huntsville area, and I'm excited to get to share that. First though, I want to share something that's incredibly easy to access. We are Huntsville. They were awesome enough to sponsor this season of the podcast, and they're also a great resource for finding things to do in Huntsville, including new restaurant and shop openings, events for family outings, date nights, or alone time, and blog posts about things going on in town. You can find them at wearehuntsville.com or on social media at wearehuntsville, so check them out. And now, it's time to meet Virginia. Flag Signal, a history podcast where your host literally drove to Wisconsin to research this episode on one of historic Huntsville's most famous recluses. Except, contrary to popular legend, she wasn't always a recluse, and she only part-time lived in Huntsville. But her legacy made a lasting impact here, and she and her household are fascinating, so I'm going to talk about her. All I knew about Mary Virginia McCormick prior to beginning my research was that she was a philanthropist who threw parties for the mill children and then never attended the parties herself. It turns out that that first part is incredibly true, and that second part is not so true. If you've heard the episode on Lily Flag, the cow, and how she most likely wasn't at any of her parties thrown in her honor, this episode is kind of the opposite. It's, amongst other things, me realizing Virginia was in fact at her parties and actually a frequent host to prominent Huntsville citizens. I'm particularly excited about this episode specifically because a lot of the primary sources, things written to and by Virginia McCormick and her household staff, are in Wisconsin. And I happen to be able to get to visit some of the McCormick family archives there towards the end of last season and see these things in person and now share them with you. But I'm getting ahead of myself. In case you aren't familiar with the McCormick family as a whole, they were super rich. In the 1830s, Cyrus McCormick, father of today's featured subject, Virginia, patented the Mechanical Reaper. It was a horse-drawn contraption that would cut and collect grain as it was dragged through a field. Big tech for antebellum farms. His design improved and sales grew, and soon the McCormick Harvesting Machine Company was born. This company went on to become International Harvester, so that's cool. As far as I can tell, these McCormicks are not in fact the people making the McCormick brand spices, by the way. Cyrus and his wife Nettie had five children who survived to adulthood over the course of about 15 years, from 1859 to 1874. Cyrus Jr., Mary Virginia, Anita, Harold, and Stanley. It's at this point that my trip to Wisconsin and their state historical archives comes into play. If you've been following the show for a few months, you may have seen that December I posted a video about getting to touch snow outside the University of Wisconsin-Madison Library, which is also home to the Wisconsin State Archives. 
Unlike some of the people I've researched for the show, the McCormick family, and Virginia in particular, was fairly good at keeping and preserving documents. This probably has to do with them being able to afford safe storage for their things, and I don't want to ignore the impact their wealth had on all this. The Wisconsin Historical Society has this collection now available by request to researchers, as well as a great deal of international harvester material. There's even a McCormick reference line dedicated phone number you can call with McCormick-related questions. It's amazing, and I greatly appreciate their willingness to let a random woman from Alabama spend hours in their weeding room. Of the items in this extensive collection, like dozens and dozens of boxes of artifacts from Mary Virginia alone, I was actually able to read things like her school notebooks, letters from friends, and diaries and journals she wrote. There's just something incredibly humanizing about seeing these documents in person, and I think that's what made researching Mary Virginia McCormick so interesting to me. Like, I was touching paper over a century old, and reading this person's thoughts, and seeing their misspellings and doodles and scratched out sentences they decided they wanted to omit. She seemed relatable. I mean, she was also incredibly wealthy and privileged, I'm not trying to discount that in any way, but there was something personable about getting a glimpse into her daily life and thoughts. As soon as I read the following entry in Teenage Virginia's diary, I knew I'd be hooked. Quote, I am filled with the desire to write a worthy novel. I despise this namby-pamby present-day trash with everything evenly balanced and no surprises. Life is a tragedy. End quote. <laughs> Beautiful. Mary Virginia McCormick was born in 1861 and was well-educated and traveled throughout her childhood and teen years. At 19, she was diagnosed with mental illness that I've most frequently seen described as schizophrenia, but, and here come the disclaimers, the field of medicine, particularly with regard to mental health diagnosis and treatments, was very different in the 1880s. I'm not that sort of doctor, and there's no telling what doctors would say or do today if they were tasked with diagnosing her, but that isn't the point. I'm not here to make a spectacle out of a mentally ill woman from over a century ago, but the diagnosis is generally important to the story. Being declared legally unable to care for oneself means not having full control of finances and the like, and there was, and still is, a lot of stigma attached. But part of what's fascinating to me about Virginia McCormick is just how much control she did sometimes seem to have, and how much respect people and friends showed her. That's a theme throughout the show today. I was also interested in the way she used her status and money to not only help those who were less financially fortunate, but also to genuinely connect with them. Having access to Virginia's writing from around this time period was really intriguing, because it felt like getting to know her more than one could from just newspaper articles and other official documents. Like, I got to see her autograph book from when she was 13, which included her own teenage signature, as well as notes from friends, including my favorite, quote, Remember me is all I ask, but if remembrance be a task, forget me, end quote. Like, there was another girl who wrote a sweet poem about Virginia being, quote, Like nature in the finest spring, end quote. But that line, those sound like Fall Out Boy lyrics, and I intend to sign all my Christmas cards with that phrase now. There are also signs that that same contrast I mentioned earlier regarding her friendships and social life versus her occasional signs of mental illness. On one hand, you had a letter from a friend of hers praising how interesting 18-year-old Virginia's letters were, and oh, how I wish we had more of those written by Virginia, and requesting a picture of her and talking about their lives and the parties she attended. That was sent less than a year before her diagnosis. Then, in the same archives, you'll find Virginia's diary, in which she wrote what almost seemed like sermons on and on. In those same set of files, there's an 1890 report by Dr. Alice Bennett entitled Insanity is a Symptom of Bright Disease. Three notes on that in order. One, Dr. Alice Bennett was an expert in mental illness at the time, and her research into its causes, particularly amongst women, and her approach to not using physical restraints on patients were both unusual and kind of groundbreaking. It makes sense that the McCormick family would be interested in her work, as they were actively trying to stay up to date on new treatment options for Virginia, and Dr. Bennett was Virginia's doctor for a while. 
too. I want to note again that insanity is a broad term here, and that word was applied to a lot of situations because there just wasn't the same knowledge base and classification that we have now for mental health. And three, Bright's disease is also not a term used nowadays. Just like insanity is a blanket term, Bright's disease has since been broken down into multiple more specific things. It's a kidney inflammation, essentially. In other words, they were looking into the possibility that a physical malady was leading to Virginia's mental illness. They were actively trying to learn more and trying to better treat her, a luxury that a lot of people with similar diagnosis did not have. It wasn't particularly a secret that Virginia had this mental illness diagnosis either, and that in itself stands out because there's this trope that people back then acted like Mr. Rochester and Jane Eyre and just locked away any family member with mental illness. In the case of the McCormicks, however, between being in the public eye and having the means to afford treatments and medical help, Virginia's situation was relatively well known, and she continued attending social events, corresponding with friends, and generally being a member of the wealthy community from time to time. For example, when Virginia's father, Cyrus McCormick, died in 1884, he left approximately $10 million behind to be divided up amongst his widow and family after five years. One Chicago newspaper at the time of the inheritance stated that, quote, It is said that Mary Virginia McCormick is of feeble mind and the court is asked to protect her interests, end quote. Sigh. Newspapers get a newspaper. This was interesting to me in contrast to the letter her older brother Cyrus wrote to Virginia regarding the paperwork. He, along with the widow, their mother Nettie, was executor to Cyrus Sr.'s will. Virginia was apparently able to sign the documents for herself, rather than have a guardian read and authorize things on her behalf in this case. Cyrus Jr., who seems to have dropped the Jr. from his name pretty quickly after his father's death, explained that the signature was needed to close up some of the accounts and offered, quote, If there are any points you do not understand and which I have not made sufficiently clear, write me and I will gladly give you all the information I have, end quote. That whole balance of Virginia having a trustee and medical staff and assistance due to her diagnosis versus her seeming to make a lot of her own choices is something that carries through this whole story, so I wanted to make sure to point it out now. So in 1889, at the age of 28, Virginia inherited close to $2 million. This is again the 1880s, so this had a good deal more buying power than it would today. Not that $2 million isn't a lot of money anyhow, but for scale here, keep that in mind as she's about to purchase multiple mansions and still have plenty of money to spare. Rather than live in, or be sent to, a hospital, as her youngest brother Stanley would do in the early 1900s after a similar diagnosis of schizophrenia, Virginia continued to travel and live in her own homes, albeit with medical staff and assistants on site. One such assistant was a Canadian woman named Grace Walker. Only four years Virginia's senior, Grace was tasked with helping with day-to-day life, decision-making, and the like. She was Virginia's companion for decades, traveling with her and, according to some historians, being, quote, the force behind her benevolent undertakings, end quote. Anyway, I've yet to mention Huntsville, let alone any benevolent undertakings or interesting parties, and that's probably why you're here. So, in July 1900, the McCormicks, acting as trustees for Virginia, purchased a mansion in North Huntsville near Lincoln Mill for $36,000, according to the official deed book. The home actually had been built by Michael O'Shaughnessy as a part-time residence while the mill, in which he had heavily invested, was built. That's in episode 8 of this show, by the way. Anyhow, the McCormicks intended it as a part-time residence as well for Virginia and her assistants. In true old-school newspaper fashion, the purchase itself made the papers, with the Huntsville Weekly Democrat stating that, quote, the McCormick household will be welcome additions to our city, end quote. And what a household it was. In addition to naming Mary Virginia McCormick as head of household, the 1910 census listed 16 servants, in addition to Grace Walker and Henrietta Matthews, who were both listed as hired women making a total of 18 people living on the property with Virginia. This included coachmen, cooks, maids, a laundress, and nurses. 
Almost half of this group was from Sweden. I also found while in Wisconsin a listing of all the horses. There were 11 and 3 mules, which from my understanding is quite a lot given the circumstances. So, whereas the previous newspaper articles in Chicago made a point of mentioning Virginia's, big quotes here, insanity, the Huntsville Press didn't seem to make a big deal out of it. There were notes in social pages when, quote, Miss McCormick's attendants, end quote, were going on vacation, as well as when Grace was traveling, even with mentions of who would be staying with Virginia during her absence. But it was stated more plainly, as though they were all just friends checking in on each other, rather than a woman whose full-time job it was to run a household, manage expenses, and otherwise care for another person. At first, announcements of the group's arrival to town just referenced, quote, Miss McCormick and household, end quote, or, quote, Miss Virginia McCormick and her charming household, end quote. But as Grace Walker became better known, people started talking about her positively as well. In January of 1912, the Huntsville Daily Times said, quote, Their many friends here are glad to know that Miss Grace Walker and the Miss Virginia McCormick household have arrived to spend the remainder of the winter here, end quote. Interesting phrasing that the attendant here is Grace's coming to town, and then also the McCormick household. Like, they didn't have Virginia's name first, despite her being the heiress, homeowner, etc. That same paragraph also added that their home, quote, is a blaze of beauty for their reception and entertainment, end quote. And speaking of parties, let me tell you. The McCormick household parties were actually the first thing I recall ever hearing about Virginia and company. If you listen to the, some of the show's other episode, you've heard my personal fascination with historical parties, from the ones in Lily Flag's Honor, episode 3, to the trolley party, episode 9. But the McCormick parties were special because they weren't exclusive to the wealthy and powerful, and I love that. The legend goes that Virginia was incredibly reclusive, partly because she didn't make herself a feature of the community-wide party she threw, but that doesn't mean she didn't have friends. In the Wisconsin archives, there were all sorts of letters from friends of Virginia throughout her life, and plenty of mention of gifts and visits from these people, some of whom, like the Goldsmiths and Chases, are rather well known by local historians, and they were prominent citizens at the time. I mentioned that Virginia's parties are the thing for which I knew her prior to starting my research, and that I'd not heard of her attending the parties herself. Virginia's birthday happened to be in May 5th, which happens to be close to May Day, the first of the month. As such, Virginia got into the habit of hosting parties with maypoles and the like in her yard and inviting the mill children. The 1906 rendition of this tradition, dubbed a May Fête Champtère, I just butchered some French, in the newspaper, included over 100 guests and a full theatrical and musical performance by the children. The article also mentioned Grace Walker's presence, as well as Virginia taking photos with the performers. There was also at least one Christmas party in 1905, with the Weekly Democrat saying the McCormick household, quote, gave a Christmas tree, end quote, and that Virginia had 75 children as her guests. A few months later, the Mercury reported that, quote, Miss Virginia McCormick entertained last Friday afternoon in honor of the little folks who took part in Miss Clay's entertainment, Mother Goose Rhymes and Melodies, end quote. We, and by we I suppose I mean people who have read through the Wisconsin records, know a bit about Virginia's daily life because her nurses kept records for activities and behaviors each day, like a less dramatic diary and without all the juicy bits. For example, February 5th, 1912, quote, Miss McCormick slept eight hours and 30 minutes with one awakening, followed usual routine and played well with musicians. Miss Goldsmith here to luncheon and Miss McCormick seemed to enjoy her very much, has been happy all day, end quote. Riveting. From these, I was also able to pull the nurses' accounts of the days of those May parties, including the following from 1909. Quote, Had children's party on the lawn. When they were seated at the table, Miss McCormick took lighted candle and put on cake and spent some time with the children. End quote. That entry ended, quote, Altogether spent a very happy day. End quote. 
And then in 1912, quote, when Miss McCormick came home from afternoon drive, she found the children from Abington Sunday School on the lawn having their games, and she was very much interested and pleased, and later came out and asked to have her picture taken with them, and later came out to see that they had the refreshments and see them get flour apiece, end quote. So while she wasn't necessarily constantly present at these parties the mill children attended on her property, and apparently arrived mid-event at least once, Verdina certainly doesn't sound like she was incredibly antisocial. While the descriptions of her mental state on various days make it clear she was at sometimes aloof, Virginia seems to have definitely attended a lot of her parties. Unfortunately, since these pictures are long gone or missing in someone's attic or otherwise inaccessible, and the nurses' reports I've been quoting were probably last seen in Huntsville around the time they were written over a century ago, this is one of those details of history that sort of got swept away. So it was really cool to get to find these and read these and have the opportunity to tell you that this woman we thought of as a recluse was in fact often surrounded by friends and community. There were usually numerous times a week in the nurses' notes that they listed guests coming by the house for lunch or dinner. These daily notes also give glimpses into treatment approaches for mental illness at the time, including things that couldn't be afforded by the average person. She went on walks as well as rides in her carriage, one that she custom designed and had shipped from Chicago. If you're wondering how custom vehicle design worked in this time period, it included a coloring sheet with the outline of a carriage that one could color in with pencil and send back. Virginia's was mostly dark green with red stripes, if you wondered. Another part of Virginia's mental health treatments was music therapy. Multiple of her staff members who lived in her home were musicians, and there were numerous references throughout her papers to music being a hobby and a source of both entertainment and calm. She took piano lessons with an instructor at her home, and accompanists, including at least another piano player and a violinist, would come by the house to play with her. There were also lots of mention in the nurse's notes, nearly every day, of, quote, played well with musicians, end quote, or, quote, enjoyed hearing the musicians play this evening, end quote. A newspaper article in 1905, while describing the Thanksgiving party thrown by Virginia, described her as a gifted pianist and said that she accompanied professors playing violin and cello as performance for her guests. As an aside, I would love to bring that back. The idea of inviting your friends over for a party, and after everyone eats, they have to sit and listen to you perform music for them. Like, I genuinely would enjoy that being a social custom again. Virginia and company, as well as a local friend of hers, Miss Humes, took the train from Huntsville to Atlanta to see the opera on at least one occasion. They all stayed in town a few days and saw a different show each night. Ada, then La Boheme, then Il Trovatore. From the nurse's notes, quote, was very quiet and smiled sweetly when she was particularly stirred from certain passages and nudged Miss Walker and told her to pay particular attention to that part, end quote. Also, quote, after the opera, sat at her window and watched the singers and people coming and going into and from the hotel and was so happy and merry. She said it was so much fun to be staying where the singers were because she heard them practicing, end quote. So no, Virginia wasn't just some eccentric recluse Harris. At the same time all this was going on, in 1906, Virginia's youngest brother Stanley was admitted to Boston's McLean Hospital for the Insane. His intake documents noted, quote, all of the family of nervous temperament, mother eccentric, sister insane, end quote. Three years later, in 1909, he was declared legally incompetent due to mental illness, and he spent the rest of his life in treatment facilities. There was a lot of drama surrounding control of his treatment, etc., among his wife and other McCormick family members, and it was just odd how much that experience contrasted with Virginia's. This isn't to say that Virginia's treatment plan was perfect by any means, but she at least had the freedom to request to travel amongst her different houses, as well as contribute to charity, which I'm about to get to, and she even had a dog. Seeing as how Virginia and Italia were part-time residents of Huntsville, and that moving her, Grace Walker, her belongings, and many of the other staff was an ordeal mentioned often in the newspapers in her notes, this of course implies they had other homes. There was one mansion in Toronto, 
another in Massachusetts, the one in Huntsville, and then there was a house in California that was originally for her, but that her younger brother ended up living in. In 1912, an attorney involved in Chicago tax law said, regarding tax estimates from Virginia McCormick, quote, she has three or four summer homes, end quote, and quote, her business address is Chicago, and her fortune is estimated at $20 million, end quote. So not even they were sure how many houses she had, and wow, that's a lot of money. Despite all the bouncing around, Grace had positive things to say, particularly about Huntsville and how Virginia felt about it, including that it, quote, is a place which could serve at any time for a longer residence than any place she has been, and is a place which she wearies less of than any other place, end quote. Also of Huntsville, Grace said, quote, There's no place in all the places I have visited with her since I have been with her, to which I have found she is more attached, end quote. So just because she wasn't a year-round Huntsvillian, that didn't mean that Virginia, or Grace, didn't care about working to improve the lives of those who lived here. While the parties and generally interesting life of Virginia McCormick is plenty enough reason for me to want to feature her in an episode, the charity work and donations also stood out to me. Like, yes, she had money to burn, but it's still interesting that a somewhat outsider could leave such an impact on the community in so many ways, from education to healthcare equity to women's empowerment. In addition to inviting families from the mill villages to her parties, Virginia was also concerned with these children's education and general well-being. According to some sources, she, quote, coerced the mill directors into providing better health care and recreation facility for the operatives by offering matching funds from a settlement, houses, and YMCAs, end quote. Many articles after the fact also referenced there being a dairy on the McCormick property that provided milk for free to mill children. I couldn't find any primary sources on those, but I also admittedly didn't have time to go through the dozens of boxes of McCormick financial paperwork while in Wisconsin, so it seems legit. Hello, Mill which is to the southwest of downtown Huntsville, she had donated Virginia Hall to be used as a social gathering place for workers there. I mention the location because she lived north of downtown, near what became Lincoln and Dallas Mill, meaning this particular building was for the benefit of an entirely different group of workers than those who normally came to her yard for parties. She also gave money in support of the school and church for the low mill area, though education for mill children wasn't exactly a priority in the state yet. I get in-depth on that in episode 7, but Alabama essentially had no particularly useful compulsory education or child labor laws. Her donations towards education extended beyond just the mill villages. Virginia also paid the salary of a faculty member in the culinary department at the Normal Industrial School, now Alabama A&M University. She also funded the transformation of a cabin on the campus that had previously been used as housing for enslaved people into the McCormick Model Home, in which the college taught cooking science and housekeeping. Virginia then hired some of the graduates of this cooking program. This woman had a thing for food, it seems, since a 1905 article about the party in honor of the one-year anniversary of Virginia Hall at the mill also mentions food from the new cooking program there being served. Another of the recipients of Virginia's philanthropy was local health care, including when her staff musician performed a concert to raise money for the Huntsville Infirmary, a precursor to the current Huntsville Hospital. In 1910, Virginia, or, well, trustees on behalf of Virginia, technically, since she couldn't legally sign her money over, purchased a cottage for $1,100 across from what was at the time the Whites-only infirmary. This cottage was then furnished by servants in Virginia's household and donated to be used as a hospital for Black Huntsvillians. She also contributed to what became the Virginia McCormick Hospital on Alabama A&M's campus in 1916. Then, in 1926, Virginia gave another $55,000 towards the building fund for, quote, Huntsville's beautiful new hospital, end quote, after the city decided running an infirmary out of multiple houses just wouldn't do. I have to wonder if her dedication to making sure Huntsvillians, all Huntsvillians, had access to better medical care was in any way related to her own experiences and need for round-the-clock nursing staff. 
Virginia had a dentist who would travel to Huntsville specifically to care for her. And yet there were people in the community being turned away from the hospital because of their race. Like, did she realize what privilege she had and then wanted to help others get any sort of medical care? Something I see written about Virginia sometimes is that her philanthropy was often guided by Grace Walker, who seems, for all intents and purposes, to not just be Virginia's secretary or caretaker, but also the head of the household, regardless of what the census data may say. Grace was very active in philanthropic work in her own right, particularly with the YMCA. I hope the song is stuck in your head now. Anyway, the pair are responsible for the construction of multiple YMCA buildings in town, between donations and fundraising efforts. This includes one in West Huntsville on Triana, called the McCormick YMCA for a while, and the one downtown at the corner of Green and Randolph. Additionally, an all-women fundraising group, originally called the Young Ladies Auxiliary to the YMCA No. 2, began to help raise money to support the efforts. This group eventually became known as the Grace Club, named for Grace Walker, by 1914, and is the predecessor to what's now Huntsville's Junior League. Grace and Virginia's activism wasn't limited to Huntsville, as they did a lot of charity work and donating in the Toronto area where they lived other parts of the year. And it's interesting that despite having their names attached to so many of their endeavors here at the time, Virginia Hall, the Grace Club, etc., I feel like their contributions have been largely forgotten. McCormick Hall still stands on the Alabama A&M's campus and is used by the English department, and it's the only of the places named for Virginia still in use here that I could find. On Friday the 13th in May 1932, it was announced that the McCormick home would be sold, with the land divided into lots and parceled off. I found no mention of Virginia ever returning to Huntsville after that. She passed away in May of 1941 in California, with the Huntsville Times noting many of her local philanthropies. The last sentence read merely, quote, Her secretary, Grace Walker, also took an active interest in Huntsville affairs. End quote. So this is probably the episode I've had the most fun writing and researching, probably because the library on University of Wisconsin-Madison's campus is down the street from one of my favorite cheese curd restaurants. Shout out to both the Huntsville-Madison County Public Library Special Collections, as always, as well as the team up at the Wisconsin Historical Society who let me go through all those boxes of McCormick papers. I'll be back. Huge thanks as well to We Are Huntsville for their sponsorship of the show. You can find them at wearehuntsville.com or on social media at wearehuntsville. Speaking of social media, you can find the show at Lily Flag Podcast on Instagram or, as of this week, Facebook. I'll be posting behind-the-scenes fun, photos of the weekly episode topic, and the occasional cat photo. So you can follow along or also find the show at anchor.fm slash lilyflagpodcast. And, as always, transcripts are available at lilyflagpodcast.wordpress.com. In all cases, it's L-I-L-Y-F-L-A-G-G podcast. Two Gs in flag. Lastly, if you're enjoying the podcast, don't be shy. Leave a review on whatever app you're listening on, or don't, I guess. Remember the show is all I ask, but if remembrance be a task, forget it. Cite your sources, and I'll talk to you next week. 